This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, it's been a little while since we've had a history mystery. It has. And I love them so much. I feel like I always have to restrain myself from doing a bunch of them. And history mystery is just fun to say. Indeed. Who doesn't like a little rhyme? So we're going to talk about one today. And this one is an artifact that's been studied for more than 100 years. Although some have claimed to figure it out, there's really no consensus about it. So we're going to be talking about uh, Minoan Crete and the Phaistos disc, which was unearthed in 1908. And this is an artifact which features symbols that, like the Voynich Manuscript, have really puzzled researchers for decades. But like I said, no one has been able to agree on what it is, although there's some people pretty vehement, especially in recent times, that they have got this thing figured out. So Crete, of course, sits in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. The island is about 200 kilometers or 124 miles across, east to west. It ranges from 12 to 58 kilometers or 7.5 to 36 miles uh, north to south. Minoans, often credited as the first European civilization, had a decentralized sort of culture, which uh, did a pretty brisk export business. So timber, food, olive oil, wool, and dye were among the many goods that Crete sold or traded, and their most popular imports were precious metals, precious stones, and ivory. Minoan culture had contact with Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Phoenicia, and they were constantly influenced a lot by all of those cultures. If you've listened to our episode on the Phoenician alphabet, you may recall that part of the development of that alphabet came to the need of creating this unified system of communication for trading with all these various Mediterranean cultures. And we know that Crete was inhabited as early as the 7th millennium BCE, although it wasn't until after the 5th millennium BCE that we really start to see pottery in the timeline. And that sort of marks the beginning of the Minoan civilization. There are a couple of different ways that the Minoan civilization is divided into periods. One method is based on this pottery and marks changes in the style of pottery. This divides it as the early period, dating from 3000 to 2100 BCE the middle period from 2100 to 1500 BCE, 
and the late period dating from 1500 to 1100 BCE. And there's an alternative way of uh, looking at the timeline of Minoan civilization and breaking it up. And that's based sort of on architecture as it's linked to the culture. And this separates it into four segments. So this breaks Minoan Crete into a pre-palatial period from 2600 to 1900 BCE, a proto-palatial period from 1900 to 1700 BCE, a neo-palatial period from 1700 to 1400 BCE, and a post-palatial period from 1400 to 1150 BCE. The Phaestos disk was discovered in 1908. It was found on Crete in what's called the Old Palace of Minoan Phaestos. The disc made of fired clay has been dated to 1850 to 1550 BCE with an estimate of about 1700 BCE as the more exact date. This means it predates the time that the Phoenicians would have been developing their alphabet. It also means it falls into the middle Minoan period if you're looking at the pottery-based breakdown of the timeline, and it sort of straddles the proto-palatial and neo-palatial periods on the alternate timeline. Circa 2000 BCE, in the crossover period between the pre-palatial and proto-palatial periods, the political system shifted and Minoan Crete became more centralized around a king. Remember, we had said earlier it was decentralized prior to this. And this is also when these palaces became part of the landscape of Crete. Uh, They served as sort of both centers of government and community. While there was a great deal of upheaval around this shift from a decentralized culture to one that was focused on a central figure, Things seemed to settle into a peaceful period not long afterward. Some event, and we don't know exactly what it was, if it was a natural disaster along the lines of an earthquake or if Minoan Crete was invaded, but some event destroyed these palaces that had become administrative centers. And this destruction and the rebuilding of the lost palaces mark the transition to the Neopalatial period. And this Neopalatial period is also considered the time when Minoan culture was at its apex. Next, we will talk about this disc in more detail. But first, let's have a break to talk about one of the awesome sponsors who make this show possible. So most people will do whatever it takes to make sure that their small business runs efficiently. And that means sometimes that that involves constant trips to the post office, but that can actually get in the way of efficiency. So with Stamps.com, you will be able to spend less time at the post office and more time actually growing your business. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping super easy. You just use your own computer and your printer to purchase and print official U.S. postage, and that's going to work for any letter and any package that you need to send. Stamps.com basically does all of the thinking for you. So you have a digital scale that's going to calculate the exact postage that you need, and it'll actually help you decide on the best class of mail you need to choose based on your needs. So join more than 500,000 small businesses that use Stamps.com and never worry about going to the post office again. Right now, you you can use our promo code, which is STUFF, for a special offer, and that gets you a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer. That includes a digital scale and up to $55 worth of free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. But before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com and enter STUFF. So now to talk about the actual disc, uh, now that we've kind of set up where it would have fallen in the timeline in terms of Minoan Greek culture. The disc itself is pretty small. The diameter ranges from 15.8 to 16.5 centimeters, which is 6.2 to 6.5 inches, depending on where that diameter measurement is taken. 
this is one of those things I have seen pictures of it at various points through the years. And in my head, it was always so much bigger than that. That then when I was working on research for this, I was like, it's, it's a little. Yeah, it's like when we did the episode on the Antikythera device, <laughs> which I similarly thought was quite large until you were like, no, it's like a little shoebox. Yes, little. Uh, and the thickness of this disc ranges from 1.6 to 2.1 centimeters. So that's about 0.6 to 0.8 inches in thickness. There's a spiral pattern of more than 240 images on the disc, featuring 45 different symbols. In the very center of side A is what looks like a simple flower, and then the symbols spiral out from there in groups that range from 2 to 7 in number. There are vertical lines that separate these groups. Side B has a symbol that's made of wavy lines and sort of a rounded triangular shape at the center. Yeah, and uh, as Tracy just said, which is in my notes, it kind of the there's an image in the center and then it sort of spirals out from there. But there are actually two different theories about how this spiraling really works in which direction it's supposed to go. So one approach points out that the symbols are oriented to the right. So faces that are in profile, there's one that's often called the punk and it looks like a dude with a mohawk. Uh, <laughs> and it, it looks to the right. And figures that appear to be walking or in motion also look like they're walking to the right. And this has led some scholars to the conclusion that the disc should be rid, uh, spiraling outward from left to right. This is also supported uh, by a sort of abrupt end point in the spiral where at the very end where the last loop kind of meets up with the previous one, there's a hard vertical line that's punctuated with several dots. It looks like a very final sort of symbol to some people. The opposite reading direction, which goes from right to left and spirals inward, is supported by the fact that some symbols occasionally overlap the symbols on their right this indicates that the stamping was done from right to left. Yeah, so just like you wouldn't write a word with the last letter first and then go backwards. Most people, maybe some people learn to write backwards. But uh, it, their idea is that they wouldn't be overlapping in that way because normally you would write it the way it would be uh beginning to end. So that suggests that it goes that way. And the symbols, we've mentioned that they were stamped. They appear to have been stamped in the clay before firing. And what's sort of interesting is that uh, these stamps don't appear to repeat, even when they're very similar to one another, like it's the same punk that reappears, but it doesn't look quite the same. So there may have been more than one stamp for that. Uh, so yes, yeah, symbols that are almost identical don't look like they were made with the same stamp. And there are a few positions in the clay uh, that look like it was stamped and then maybe reworked, kind of smoothed out, almost to erase the stamp, and then re-stamped prior to firing. Unlike the symbols, the spiral line from the center out and the lines that break up the segments of the symbols look like they were carved into the disc by hand rather than stamped. Dashes and dots also appear in some of the symbol groupings. These elements, particularly the dashes, may have some kind of significance or they may have been accidentally imprinted as the disc was being made. Yeah, they, they're not uh, consistent in where they appear. Like in some cases, they appear near the beginning of each uh, segment, but they don't do that to all the segments, so we're not sure. And there has never, as we've said before, been a consensus among researchers and scholars as to what these symbols represent. Some are obvious pictograms. They look like humans, like I talked about the punk. They look like fish or flowers, while others of them are more abstract, kind of like what Tracy mentioned earlier, that the center point on side B is like wavy lines in this triangle that's got kind of rounded edges. 
Because of this mix, it's clearly not specifically just a pictograph item, but there are too many different symbols for it to likely be an alphabet. So it's possible that the symbols represent syllables. That's a very popular uh, approach to analysis, and that each segment of symbols creates a single word. But the syllabary theory has problems as well. For one thing, if the symbols on the Phaistos disk formed a syllabary language, there would be a more even distribution of the symbols. There are also no one-syllable words and very few two-syllable words present if the disk is interpreted this way, which would be pretty unusual for a language. Yeah, it's one of those things where as I was researching and saw that, I'm like, is that? And then I'm looking at my own typing and I'm like, half of these words have only one or two syllables. Well, there, I think there are languages that have, on average, longer words, but still generally have shorter words also. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, for most languages, shorter words make up sort of the bulk of the language. Yeah, then you get compound words that are like mixes of the shorter words. Right. Uh, So it is also possible that this disk is a mix of communication forms. It could be a combination of pictogram and syllabary. And we're going to talk a little bit more about why that's a possibility in just a moment. Many theories have emerged into what this disk actually is, although there's no real evidence for any of them. It's been suggested that it's a letter a fertility ritual, some form of musical notation, a list of royalty, a religious hymn, a spell, a geometry theorem. It goes on and on and on and on and on. But without similar disks to reference against, these are all really just stabs in the dark. Yeah, but the one thing that people mostly do agree on, and this was not always the case, is that it is pretty commonly believed and accepted that the disk did in fact originate on Crete and wasn't created somewhere else and then brought there. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the 
Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. So many attempts have been made to decrypt this disc through the years. In 1975, Jean Facunau of Luxembourg believed that the language was a pre-Greek syllabic form of writing employed by a proto-Ionian culture. His translation of the disc tells the story of the reign and eventual passing of a king. Most Phaistos disc scholars rejected this interpretation, however. There have been other interpretations put forth through the years, but all of them have had a similar fate in the classics community. Yeah, they've all really been dismissed pretty readily. Uh, but there is a very recent interpretation theory that is now being discussed. And this was uh, introduced just last year. So in May of 2014, Minoan language and classic scholar Gareth Owens gave a TEDx talk about his work with the Festos disc. He and other researchers worked together with their knowledge of the writing forms Minoan Linear A, Minoan Linear B, and Cretan pictographic hieroglyphic language over the course of six years to assign syllables to the pictograms on the disc. The Cretan pictographic script was in use circa 1950 to 1700 BCE. And the symbols used in this writing form are pretty clearly drawn from real objects. So there's a lot of uh, animals and humans and plant life representation. So for context on these writing forms that we just mentioned, Cretan pictographic script was in use circa 1950 to 19 or to 1700 BCE. And the symbols used in this writing form are pretty clearly drawn from real objects, such as animals and humans and plant life. Linear A is believed to have been used on Crete from about 1850 to 1400 BCE. It's a syllabic language, and while we know that some of the phonetics represented by most of the symbols, we don't really know the language of Linear A. Linear A has been found on artifacts in Crete as well as the Aegean Islands. And you probably noticed an overlap, as we were just talking about those two, uh, in the times of use when Cretan Pictograph and Linear A were both being used. And we don't know why both the more primitive and the more advanced writing forms were being used concurrently for so long. But that could somehow explain the idea that the writing on the disc is a combination of different forms as a sort of linguistic evolution snapshot. Linear B is an adaptation of Linear A. It's believed that this was a version of the writing form uh, and that it contains more than 90 signs. This script was used for financial records and was used in palaces of many of continental Greece's cities. Linear B is considered incredibly important linguistically because vestiges of this dialect remain in evidence from Homer's writings. Yeah, it, it really did have a long-lasting influence. And it's common when interpreting something like the Phaistos disc for classicists and researchers to work backward from Linear B to Linear A to Cretan pictogram writing when they're working to interpret these texts. And using this so-called epigraphic continuity, which is one of the things that uh, Owens calls it, he's developed his interpretation of the Phaistos disc. And Owen's reading of the disc also suggests reading it inward, starting at the outer edge of the spiral rather than from the center out. 
Owens believes that he and his team have deciphered enough of the signs on the disc to determine that it is some sort of prayer to a Minoan goddess. In a particularly interesting finale to its talk, he shares a recording of a woman reading the Phaistos disc as his team has decrypted it. And you can also find this recorded audio interpretation on a website that Owens and his colleagues have put together, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But it is pretty interesting to hear someone speaking this language, whatever it is, this communication. Owens' conviction in his findings is quite apparent. In fact, he's willing to bet other researchers that his interpretation is correct. And his bet is only one euro because he's really hoping a lot of people will challenge him and then he'll wind up with a lot of euros. Yeah, for each different bet he'll collect. He'll collect one euro. Uh, and that, of course, doesn't mean, I mean, we, we talked earlier about how many other people have put forth theories and they all got shot down. So it does not mean that even though Owens is very, very confident in their findings that the entire classics world agrees with his transliteration. So in a response paper that was written by John G. Young, who is a professor of classics at the University of Kansas, he kind of goes through point by point what he feels like is right in their work and what he feels like kind of diverged uh, and wasn't maybe so solid. And he summarizes his points at the end of the paper by writing, quote, I think Owen starts off well, and in the company of many of us who have tried to place secure phonetic values on Phaistos disc signs by working backward from linear B. But by the time we get to Cretan pictogram signs, the identifications have become insecure, and the step to identifying Phaistos disc signs now seems a leap. Owens has bridged some of that leap, but I cannot follow him in identifying 90% of the Phaistos disc signs, let alone seeing in his transcription true parallels to linear A words. Thomas G. Palema, Robert M. Armstrong, Centennial Professor and Director of the Program in Aegean Scripts and Prehistory at the University of Texas at Austin, wrote of the Owens interpretation, The data are insufficient for proof or disproof. Every proposed decipherment, Gareth Owens is included, fails the standard of probability. Yeah, I was actually surprised watching some of these documentaries and doing research that probability comes up a lot. Like linguistic probability wasn't something I had thought a lot about. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like that same thing where we were saying earlier, like the likelihood of a language having no single syllables, not so probable. Right. It comes up in terms of statistical analysis of language a lot more than I ever would have thought about. But uh, another critic, Brent Davis, who is the adjunct professor at the Center for Classics and Archaeology at the University of Melbourne, uh, was asked his opinion, and he said, quote, in the end, Owens's readings are based on a stack of unverifiable assumptions. His conclusions are unproven and unprovable. It's not surprising, then, that so many scholars of Aegean Bronze Age scripts aren't accepting them. Despite criticisms, Owens is steadfast and upbeat. In an email interview with Bible History Daily, he wrote, it is perhaps easier to criticize than to offer something new. After 25 years on Crete and having spent a decade doing a Ph.D. in linguistics on the structure of the Minoan language, and after six years on the disc, I personally will keep trying to improve our work, and I will happily hear better theories with great pleasure. Yeah, he really is a very upbeat gent. His talk is really good. If you're like me when you first start his TED Talk, he starts in another language and you think, oh, no, I, this isn't for me. That's only the very beginning. So stick with it. And then if you are a native English speaker, you'll be right on board. He switches to English for the rest of it. Uh, but he gives the talk in Greece. So he starts out speaking, I believe, Greek. Uh, but before we talk a little bit about a whole other controversy that surrounds this disc, let's pause for another word from one of our fabulous sponsors who keeps us going. 
There's a city far away. A fiction podcast. The richest, most powerful place on earth. On an epic scale. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. A vast empire threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place, or we will die too. The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide. They are among us. Who? First a few, and now many. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, our sponsor is Squarespace, and Squarespace is an awesome way, especially if you don't have a lot of experience, for you to make your own website. It is a very easy-to-use, drag-and-drop, intuitive interface. On top of it being extremely easy-to-use, they also have 24-7 customer support. That includes email support and live chat. They are there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you can make a really beautiful website that's very easy to create and also has lots and lots of support there if you get into it and discover it's not quite as easy for you personally as you thought that it might be. One of my favorite things about it is uh, how easily it scales your website so that it's going to look great on a computer, on a phone, on a tablet. Anywhere someone can look at your website, they're going to see the best possible experience. I love that, too. So you can actually try this product risk-free by going to www.squarespace.com slash history. That gives you a 14-day free trial with no credit card necessary. And I will say that again, no credit card necessary for your 14-day free trial. If you'd like it, once you get into it, the it costs as little as $8 a month and includes a free dom- domain name if you sign up for a year. If you use the offer code history, you get 10% off of your first purchase. So one more time, that is squarespace.com slash history. So there's the question of whether this whole thing is really a hoax. The man who discovered the Festo's disc was Luigi Pernier, and he was an Italian archaeologist. He found the disc in an underground temple depository. He also believed it to be of religious significance. Along with the Festo's disc, the Italian archaeology team that he was part of found a clay tablet with linear A inscriptions, as well as various pieces of pottery. And recall that this was in the early 1900s when he made that discovery. Now, as is the case with other ancient artifacts that haven't been truly understood, I'll once again reference the Voynich Manuscript, which has come up as some people think it's a hoax, because otherwise somebody would have decrypted it by now. Uh, controversy, again, eventually enters the picture with the Festos disc as well. In 2008, Jerome Eisenberg, who is the director and owner of the Royal Athena Galleries in New York and is considered an expert on ancient art, proclaimed that the Festos disc was, in fact, a fraud. Eisenberg believes that Pernier, out of jealousy that he held for other archaeologists of his time and their accomplishments, fabricated an accomplishment of his own. He's not the first person to put forth the idea that the disc is baloney, but he seems to be the most passionate about it when it comes to really chasing down the truth. And to support his accusation, Eisenberg pointed out that the edges of the Festos disc are far more cleanly cut than other examples of tablets from Minoan Crete. 
And he also cites the lack of any credible translation as evidence that it really is likely fake. Additionally, no other artifact found on Crete has the same type of stamping or writing as the Phaistos disc. One piece, the Archilochori Axe, founded in 1934, does have some similar markings. But Eisenberg also believes this might, too, be a fraud. So uh, our listeners are smart. And as they have listened to us just now talking about Eisenberg's claims, they probably had a great idea. The Phaistos disc is carefully kept in the Heraklion Archaeology Museum in Crete. So why doesn't someone just test this to see if it's the real deal or just a long pondered fraud? Yeah, I was like, we have isotope testing. What's going on? The museum is not having any of that. It will not allow the disc to be tested. Eisenberg has requested the testing many times over the years, offering to pay all the expenses that it would incur, but no dice. They also have the axe that we mentioned a moment ago, and they're not letting him or anyone test that either. Eisenberg asserts that the required tests are not going to harm the disc. Uh, At most, one or two small holes would need to be drilled in the edge of the artifact to take samples, so tiny that he says these can easily be repaired so that the naked eye would detect no anomaly. Requests to even examine the disc have been denied on the grounds that it's an important piece of Greek history and is unmovable. Eisenberg believes that the museum is afraid that the disc would be revealed as fake and that they would lose tourism because of it. Yeah, so it remains a mystery unless they cave and acquiesce and let someone test it. Uh, I don't know. People love hoaxes, so it might actually work out in their benefit if it were fake. At that point, it's still a hundred-year-old, really... um, carefully crafted hoax so it'd be interesting yeah uh there was i this is kind of a footnote it's such a weird thing and i found uh just one reference to it but i wanted to mention it there was allegedly a smaller copy of the disc that was found in russia in 1992 that raised some other hoax questions uh but that version has vanished without a trace uh several years after people started raising their eyebrows about it it just kind of went underground it has never been seen or heard of again so we we don't have that for comparison. Yeah. We don't have. This whole thing just makes me wonder if, if hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of years from now, archaeologists are going to find some kind of junky thing somebody bought at Urban Outfitters that has like fake Hopi designs on it or something. Yeah. And then spend <laughs> hundreds of years trying to decode it when really it is cheap stuff that appropriated another culture and then was sold in a retail establishment. <laughs> Yeah, I I wonder similar things as well. I mean, I I had that moment of what if it's just some kid's doodle that his parents fired yeah. to keep? What I don't we don't know. What if this was a prop that was <laughs> used in a play? I don't know. Right? Yeah, we have no. There's just enough similarities, you know, and valid interpretive elements to it, or valid to be interpreted elements to it that. It seems like it could be grounded there, but people have also pointed out that it's just far enough off that it supports the hoax theory and that it's just good enough to represent pretty closely what we knew about Minoan Crete Mm -hmm. in the early 1900s. So so we don't know. And hopefully we'll learn more at some point. I always like some fresh learning. Before I think of some more wild conjecture, do you have some listener mail for us? I do. I have a couple of different pieces. Uh, it's a listener mail extravaganza over here. First, I have a little correction because sometimes I'm a doofus. Uh, when we had read in a previous episode a time capsule email 
uh, during our listener mail segment, we were talking about Andy Warhol and those time capsules. And I incorrectly attributed Warhol's death to Valerie Solanus because my brain cannot be trusted. She did shoot him, but he died much later. Because she shot him. And all I could hear was like Lou Reed singing about it in my head. And I just, my brain misfired. I apologize. I feel very, very embarrassed. Uh, cause I really do love Warhol and did a lot of papers on him when I was younger. But it doesn't always stick with you. It's like a foreign language sometimes. If you're not practicing it, it just gets rusty. Uh, and then I have several short listener mails all about our recent episode on peanut butter. Because, like I said, I love it and could talk about it a lot. So the first one is from our listener, Perry, who wanted to recommend a dish for peanut butter lovers. He says, hi, ladies. I'm sitting here at work listening to today's podcast on peanut butter, and I thought I'd take the time to recommend the strangest and most delicious peanut butter dish I have ever had the pleasure of eating. A few years ago, my younger sister spent a semester abroad in Ghana, and when she returned home, she couldn't wait to take me to the nearest authentic Ghanaian food restaurant we could find. She was so excited for me to try Uh, One dish in particular because of my love for its star ingredient, which is peanut butter. Apparently, peanut butter is revered in Ghana. Who knew? I highly recommend booking it to the nearest place you can find to try a plate of peanut butter soup and fufu, which is a dish served with sticky rice that you roll into balls and dip with your hands into the chicken and peanut butter soup. Although it may sound like a strange combination for peanut butter lovers like ourselves, it is just about the tastiest dish ever. Perry, I am glad to report that I have had fufu, and I agree it's so delicious. I think I had it uh, the first time when I was in Disney World. There is a real, there are a couple of really yummy African restaurants at Animal Kingdom Lodge. Mm-hmm. And at one point, one of the chefs came out and we were talking because that's my favorite ride is food. And uh, he, we were talking about the fufu and he brought me some sticky rice and we played and ate together, which was delicious. And it has now become one of my big favorites. Uh, the next one is from our listener, Penny, and she is also writing about it. Uh, she does photo editing at a fashion company, which sounds so cool to me. Penny, send us pictures. Uh, she says, when I was a young girl, we lived with my grandmother in Ohio during every summer and winter vacation. She had a large old house with a large basement that I was always too frightened to go down into. One evening, I chased a firefly down into the basement and ended up staring at shelves upon shelves of canned goods and boxes of clothes and random things. I remembered seeing large cans of peanut butter sitting right on the shelf at eye level that were bigger than my head. I was too scared to venture forth, and I ran back upstairs. I remember from that day forth, I thought that every time I asked for a peanut butter sandwich, that the peanut butter came from one of those cans. (laughs) Now that I'm older and my grandmother has passed, I visited her home, but it's since been cleared out. I asked my uncle about all that stuff I saw, and he said that during the Great Depression, my grandmother was expected to take care of her younger siblings as she was the eldest, and the family basically survived on peanut butter. The Great Depression did something to people, including turning my grandmother into a hoarder of food and clothing from Goodwill. She was convinced the next depression and economic collapse was right around the corner, and she stocked up on everything, determined to never go hungry by always having peanut butter nearby. And even now, I always have at least three peanut butter jars in my house, just in case. I I, uh, I can't uh, I can't fault the idea of keeping peanut butter on hand for a variety of reasons, except that I can't because I eat it all much too quickly. <laughs> like when the apocalypse comes and Brian's like, where's all that food we bought? I'll be like, in my tummy. <laughs> it's gone. Uh, and the last one is from our listener, Liam, and it made me laugh so hard. It came late-ish last night while I was doing some work and I was cackling so much that it frightened my cats. Uh, he says, recently, when listening to the fascinating history of peanut butter, my ears pricked up when I heard you mention Sanitas Food Company because of a funny thing I've noticed here in Australia. And I left out the part earlier where Liam is an American from Boston and he's currently living in Sydney. 
He said, peanut butter is one of many surprising things that Aussies de- designate as, quote, very American. I, of course, love the stuff, and I was cracked up when I found a jar of peanut butter at my local grocery store with a picture pun of a peanut doing crunches to indicate that it was crunchy peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> he sent us a picture. It is so funny. I literally could not stop laughing. He says, it doesn't take much to make me laugh, but when I posted the photo on Facebook, my sister pointed out the funny name of the company that made the peanut butter, which is Sanitarium. And then he made the connection to John Harvey Kellogg and the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And so I pointed him to that episode, but I just wanted to share the idea that crunchy peanut butter can be represented by a peanut exercising his abs. <laughs> That's like the best thing ever. I also want uh, you, you uh, expressed your horror that I do not care for crunchy peanut butter. Yeah. However, uh, on the 4th of July, we had a, a, an entire beach day, which was great. And we had sandwiches for lunch with sandwich provisions that friends had brought and they had like a crunchy peanut butter mm. and it was delicious. I had it within a peanut butter and banana sandwich. So I think perhaps either my tastes have changed, which is true. There's other stuff that was, I hated when I was a child that I like now, or I was just eating the wrong crunchy peanut butter. Well, I was going to say, I developed a theory after uh, we were doing the, the QA listen on that episode mm-hmm. that because you had mentioned the big vat peanut butter that had to be stirred mm-hmm. sometimes because of the stirring and the, um, the pe- chunky peanuts in it, they can break up a little bit and you get almost a grainy texture. Mm-hmm. And that might be the problem that you had had previously. Yeah. Like it gets, it gets a little weird in your mouth and some of the natural ones that you have to stir when there's crunchy bits. Those are so much better now than they were in 1977. They really are. I remember we had a, a friend who had, um, we used to say she had hippie parents. It's really not appropriate to say, but in the 70s, that's right. what my parents said about her parents. And they had that kind of peanut butter. And I always remember being like, yeah, this is difficult to consume. And it tore my bread. There are, <laughs> there are a lot of food options that, that my, like the, Whole grain pasta options that exist now are also so much better than in the late 70s. Anyway, that's off topic. Food science. If you would like to write to us about crazy uh, legumes doing exercises on canisters of food or any other thing, you can do that at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also connect with us at Facebook.com slash History. On Twitter at Missed in History, at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, on Pinterest.com slash Missed in History, and at MissedInHistory.spreadshirt.com if you would like to purchase Missed in History uh, shirts and phone cases and tote bags and other wackadoodle items. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about ancient Greece, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works, and you can type in Greece in the search bar and you will get all kinds of information about uh, Greece through the ages. If you would like to come and visit us at missinhistory.com, you can do that and find all of our back episodes and uh, show notes for all of the episodes since Tracy and I have been hosts, as well as the occasional other delightful goodie or blog post. So we encourage you to do that. Come see us on the web at houseofworks.com and missinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure, and really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to the 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears.